Act One of A Wife Without a Smile by Arthur Wing Pinero. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Wife Without a Smile The Persons of the Play Seymour Rippengill Read by Greg Giordano Haynes Webmarsh Read by Alan Mapstone Vivian Trude, read by Thomas Peter. John Pillinger, read by Todd. Foley, read by Jim Hedrick. Avis, Mrs. Rippengill, read by Jen Broder. Christabel, Mrs. Webmarsh, read by Lindsay Clark. Mrs. Lovett, read by Sonia. Bates, read by Krista Zaleski. Stage Directions, read by Michael Max. Scene. The Boathouse in the grounds of Mr. Rippingill's residence at Taplow. Time, a weekend in July. A Wife Without a Smile. The First Act. The scene is a room in the boathouse belonging to a villa at Taplow. On the left is a double door. When this door is open, a dwarf wall is seen forming the embankment of the garden and running in a direct line away from the spectator into the distance. On the extreme left, parallel with this wall, is the opposite side of the river. The garden is represented as being some 18 feet above the river level, and that part of the embankment wall nearest to the audience is supposed to end in a flight of steps leading down to the actual boathouse and the river bank. At the back of the room there is a deep bay window with cushioned seats, and on the right is an archway admitting to a hall of moderate size in which, opening from extensive grounds, is another door. The walls and ceiling of the room are of polished wood, the ceiling being supported by beams. A cottage piano and a music stool stand on the right of the bay window. Also on the right are an armchair, a small table and a settee, and, against the wall, a sideboard and a smoking table. Some dishes of fruit and the remains of the more substantial items of a morning meal are on the sideboard, and on the smoking table are boxes of cigarettes and cigars, an array of pipes and a matchstand, and a jar of tobacco. On the left, laid for breakfast, is a large oval table at which a settee and three chairs supply seats for five persons, and further to the left against the wall is a writing table. Other articles of furniture of a light kind occupy spaces not provided for in this description. A telephone is attached to the wall at the back on the right. The window seat is strewn with newspapers and magazines. Headgear in great variety hangs on a hat-stand in the hall. Just outside the hall door, a garden ladder rests against a veranda which surrounds the house. Creepers cling to the veranda. The window and the hall door are open, and the sun is shining brightly. Note, right and left, unless expressly stated to be the right or left of a personage in the play, are the spectators right and left not the actors. Avis, Mrs. Rippingill, Christabel, Mrs. Webmarsh, Haynes Webmarsh, Seymour Rippingill, and Mrs. Lovett are seated at the table on the left, finishing breakfast. Avis is at the head of the table, facing the spectator. Christabel and Rippingill are on her right, Webmarsh and Mrs. Lovett on her left. The ladies are in dainty summer gowns, the men in flannels. Foley, a manservant, is busying himself at the sideboard. Presently, carrying a tray laden with breakfast things, he withdraws, passing through the hall and disappearing into the garden. Rippingill is at the end of a funny story, and everyone is more or less amused except Avis, whose face wears an expression of settled melancholy. 
Rippingill, a volatile yet precise little gentleman of forty-four. <laughs> Mrs. Lovette, a handsome woman of uncertain age, bright and prepossessing. <laughs> Nonsense! It couldn't have happened. It's impossible. Pardon me. Many things are improbable. Nothing is impossible. Christabel, a sparkling brunette, two or three years senior to Avis. What did the man do? Apologized profusely. What could he do? Webmarsh, five and thirty, tall, lean, curly-headed, moustached. And she, the lady? Fled downstairs and jumped into a passing hansom. I won't answer another question. <laughs> His laughter flickers out, and extinguished by Avis's silence, he exchanges glances with Mrs. Lovette and shrugs his shoulders. Congratulate you, Seymour. Quite up to high water mark. Christabel, to Rippingill. Your stock is inexhaustible, and you are such a wonderful mimic. Mrs. Lovett, to Avis. You don't hear this today for the first time. That is evident, Mrs. Rippingill. Avis, a pretty, childlike young woman of three-and-twenty, with an abundance of fair hair, turning doleful eyes upon Mrs. Lovett. Yes, I've not heard it before. Really? Rippingill. Wiping his brow. Phew. To Christabel. More strawberries? No, thanks. Rippingill. To Mrs. Lovett. Dora, I insist. Three or four. They're delicious. Rippingill. Rising. My own growing. In a whisper, as he takes her plate. Now, your tale of old lady Whitstable and the pickled salmon. Try it. I can't. She paralyzes me. For my sake, dear friend, it's irresistible. Aloud, moving to the sideboard. I am begging Mrs. Lovett to give us her story of a supper party at Old Lady Whitstable's. Oh, capital. Rippingill, standing at the sideboard, watches Avis eagerly. He spoons strawberries onto Mrs. Lovett's plate, letting some of them fall to the floor. Old Lady Whitstable? She is still alive, isn't she? Alive? I was playing bridge with her for an hour yesterday. She's only 87. Only? Oh, a widow may live to any age when she's properly provided for. I intend to do so, frankly. You hear that, Haynes? I hope you are insuring your life heavily. Not I. A literary gent is entitled to die without a farthing. Heartless. What about widowers, Mrs. Lovett? They generally shorten their lives by remarrying. Merci. I'll remember your warning. Christabel, holding out her hand lovingly. Oh, Haynes, don't chaff. I can't bear it. Webmarsh, pressing her hand. Forgive me, Christabel. Yes, 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 yes. But Lady Whitstable's supper party. Well, the incident arose out of a little supper at her house in Onslow Gardens. <laughs> this is exquisite. Listen, Avis. The function took place in her bedroom. They can't move her, you know. Avis, rising herself. Talking of bedrooms, I've forgotten to ask if you were comfortable in yours last night, Mrs. Lovett. Rippingill, dropping strawberries. Ch -ch -ch. Oh, oh, most comfortable. Some people loathe a strange bed. Rippingill, advancing, the plate of strawberries in his hand. Avis, Avis. Lady Whitstable and the Pickled Salmon. Now consider for a moment, my pet. Reflect. What a grotesque contrast. A fine, 
crusted specimen of our English aristocracy, and pickled fish, the mere contemplation of two images so violently opposed in itself makes for mirth, doesn't it, dearest? I suppose it does, Seymour. Suppose? How obvious! In Mrs. Lovett's ear, as he places the strawberries before her, Go ahead. Well, on this particular occasion... <laughs> Mrs. Lovett, to Ripping Girl. Be quiet. Resuming. On this... on this particular... on this... Breaking down under Avis's pensive gaze. Oh, gracious. Hey, what's wrong? I... I've been put off it. No, no. Please. Please. There is a knock at the door on the left. Rippingill, raising his voice. Who's there? Mrs. Lovett, to Rippingill, as the others turn their heads towards the door. Incurable. The door opens and Vivian Trude presents himself, his blazer on his arm, his shirt sleeves rolled back to his elbows. He is a good-looking, boyish young man of six-and-twenty, lofty and supercilious in manner. Morning. Am I in the way? In the way? Pointing to the breakfast table. We kept a vacant place for you, on the chance. Trude, putting on his jacket. Sorry. Shaking hands with Avis and Christabel. Morning. Nodding to Webmarsh. How do you do? How are you? Rippingill, to Mrs. Lovett, who is eating her strawberries. Let me introduce my young friend, Mr. Trude, Mrs. Lovett. Delighted. One of our rising artists. But not an early rising artist, eh? <laughs> Good. You missed that, Avis. Missed what, Seymour? Hmm, uh, never mind. Going to the smoking table. Pipes? Webmarsh to Avis. May I? Of course. Webmarsh, joining Rippingill and filling his pipe from the tobacco jar. A sublime tobacco, which from east to west cheers the tar's labour or the Turkman's rest. Byron, whose spreading evil we, ah, we must learn to smother, or stunt the schoolboy and unsex his mother. Rippingill. <laughs> the readiness of the creature. Admirable. Trude, seating himself in the armchair. I dropped in to inquire what the arrangements are for this morning whether I may be allowed to share in them. Your fate is in the hands of the ladies. I have to be busy with my head gardener until lunch. Offering him a box of cigarettes. Ismolons? Trude, producing his cigarette case. Thanks. I prefer my own. To Avis? I say, Mrs. Rippingill, I've done the deed. The deed? Taken on my cottage at Cookham for August. Rippingill, advancing to the settee on the right. Bravo! The sweet little nest I was so envious over yesterday. They've stuck you pretty considerably. Thratful. Rippingill, lighting his pipe. Pish, you'll be inspired to paint a picture that will make your fortune. Karat, that sort of caper, what? Oh, I'm full of ideas. Avis. To Mrs. Lovett. Shall we move? Certainly. Avis and Christabel retire to the bay window, where Webmarsh, emitting clouds of tobacco smoke, is already ensconced. Mrs. Lovett remains at the table for a few moments, brushing crumbs from her dress and otherwise putting herself in order. Now, I've a notion for the composition of a landscape. <laughs> the presumptuous amateur. It flashed across me after our recent discussion on symbolism in art. 
Trude rising. Yes, but we won't keep the ladies hanging about. You're right. Another time. Trude joins the group at the window. Mrs. Levette is leaving the table. Rippingill, under his breath. Dora? Eh? Rippingill, rising. Shh! Drawing her towards the right. I confess to being grievously disappointed at the failure of your inimitable description of Lady Whitstable and the pickled salmon. I had set my hopes upon it in a great measure. Failure? You can't say the beastly thing failed. It never made a start. True. I didn't catch the salmon, much less pickle it. Perhaps later in the day. Not for worlds. She freezes my spine, that glum little wife of yours. You see, my letters have not overstated the case, Dora. It is a decided defect in her disposition. Appalling. Tomorrow is Sunday, too. I feel inclined to take the first train back to town. Oh, in mercy, don't. You heard me tell young Trude, as an excuse for my remaining at home this morning, that I am engaged with Phillips, the gardener. Yes. <laughs> Your Phillips. It will be such a relief to me, dear old friend, to unburden myself to you. Viva voce. But what excuse can I make for shirking these girls? Oh, I leave that to you. You were a girl once. Say more. I beg your pardon. What I mean is that two young women of er, much the same age are always ready to forego the privilege of the society of one who is a great deal... That is, a few years. You'd better stop. You're getting deeper and deeper. Foley, the manservant, and Bates, the parlourmaid, have entered from the garden, the former carrying a large, light wooden box, corded and labelled. Foley, showing the box to Rippingill. A porter has brought this from the station, sir. It's marked urgent. Rippingill, having glanced at the label, hurriedly takes the box from the man. Thank you, Foley. Thank you. To Mrs. Lovett. Cover me. Spread yourself out. She places herself between him and the group at the window, while he goes down upon his knees and secretes the box under the settee. Foley joins Bates, who has a tray in her hand, and assists her to clear the breakfast table. Mrs. Lovett. To Ripping Girl. What on earth have you there? What are you concealing? Toys. Toys? Of a purely diverting character. Ordered them from Hamley's yesterday. Gave the firm carte blanche. The season's novelties. Getting to his feet? Are you familiar with the dying pig? I've not that pleasure. Rippingill, beaming. It's irresistible. They are to be a surprise for your wife. Rippingill, with a nod of assent. I shall distribute them about the room during her absence. Wiping his brow again. I want them to burst upon her. You fancy they may cause those stony features of hers to relax. Oof. I am determined to leave no stone unturned. Not even stony features. <laughs> the group at the window breaks up. Quick. Passing her across to the settee. Sit down. Pointing to the box. Put your feet in front of it. It's so enormous. Yes, but your feet will hide it. Mrs. Lovett, sitting. Well, I'm sure. I beg your pardon. What I meant was... To Avis, who now approaches, followed by the Webmarshes. My pet! Mr. and Mrs. Webmarsh won't go on the river this morning, Seymour. Mr. Webmarsh has some reviewing to do. To Webmarsh? I'll run upstairs and make sure that your table is in order. 
Pray don't trouble. Avis disappears, entering the hall and turning sharp round to her right. Reviewing. Reviewing. Yes, I must plough through the second volume of The Life of Disraeli before dinner, somehow or other. And, uh, <clears throat> Mrs. Webmarsh? Oh, uh, Christabel. I dictate notes to Christabel as I read. That's the process. <laughs> oh, that's the process, is it? Oh, no. Now what is the man laughing at? Rippingill. To Christabel. Shall I tell tales, Mrs. Christabel? I don't care a rap. You're thinking of yesterday. Rippingill to Mrs. Lovett. I've placed the room above this at Mr. Webb Marsh's disposal, Dora, for his reviewing. <laughs> and yesterday, having occasion to speak a word to the reviewer, I... <laughs> No, it isn't fair of me. I'll supply the sequel. Mr. Rippingill found me sitting beside Haynes on the sofa, my head resting on his shoulder. Volume one, upon the floor, discreetly, face downward, the process of reviewing. Mr. and Mrs. Webmarge may have been reviewing the events of their courtship. Extremely nice of you, Mrs. Lovett. I gather that, like our host and hostess, you are newly married people? Christabel, slipping her arm through Webmarsh's. <laughs> We've scarcely yet realised that we are married, have we, Haynes, dear? At any rate, my day will be devoted to work, and my wife promises me her sympathetic assistance. To Christabel. We will make a start, Christabel. Au revoir. To lunch. Webmarsh and Christabel withdraw in the direction taken by Avis. Rippingill whistles softly. Too bad of you, Seymour. Hmm. Sad. Upon my soul, my imagination fails to conceive a more deplorable spectacle than that of a man incapable of enjoying a laugh against himself. The difficulty lies in persuading the live lobster that the boiling process is dignified and entertaining. But Webmarsh, who used to have the keenest appreciation of fun, a couple of months ago, he would have roared at my harmless banter. Two months ago. When we were lobsters, <laughs> bachelors. Now it's nothing but bill and coo, bill and coo, from morning till eve. Moving over to the left as Avis re-enters and returns to Mrs. Levette. <laughs> His critique in the bi-weekly should be a gem. <laughs> Wiping tears of laughter from his eyes. The process of reviewing. By this time, the servants have cleared the table and sideboard and have departed, carrying the rest of the breakfast things on trays. Trude, who has remained at the window reading a newspaper, now approaches Avis. I hope Mrs. Lovett is coming with us, Mrs. Rippingill. Avis to Mrs. Lovett. Mr. Trude proposes to take us up to Marlow, Mrs. Lovett. Exceedingly kind of Mr. Trude. But I'd rather you all went your own ways and let me to potter about here alone. My dear Dora. I'm a tired town woman. Recollect, stale as old shoes. Oh, it shall be exactly as you wish, naturally. Dreadfully grieved. He goes out at the door on the left, leaving the door open. Avis, to Rippingill. Seymour, you will... Can't, my pet. Most important letter to write. Why, a little while ago it was the gardener. Yes, yes, I'm writing to the gardener. Writing to the gardener. Rippingill, smiling fatuously. 
It does sound singular, but it isn't. I can't stand the heat of the sun. That's the simple fact. I cannot stand the sun. But Phillips could see you up at the house, or here. My dear Avis, it may be an old-fashioned prejudice on my part, but ever since I have been in a position to employ a gardener, it has been a settled conviction with me that er, uh, his appropriate place is in the garden. As you please. I have to give some orders to the cook. Tell Mr. Trude he must wait five minutes for me. I will, dearest. She takes a hat from the stand and goes. Rippingill bustles away and calls to Trude from over the dwarf wall. Mrs. Rippingill has gone up to the house to attend to some domestic duties. She'll be with you shortly. Trude, from below. All right. Rippingill comes back into the room. Mrs. Levert, who has accompanied Avis to the hall door, faces him, laughing. Eh? Seymour, you're a beautiful storyteller, but oh, what a contemptible hand at a fib. <laughs> I ought to be able to return the compliment, but I can't. Mrs. Levert, fanning herself with a fan which she carries. Well, I never. I beg. Your pardon. Seating himself in a chair on the left and rubbing his head. The truth is, Dora, I sometimes find my wife's baby face and round eyes a trifle discomposing. Seymour. Dear friend? Your first wife was possessed of no sense of humour either, was she? After a pause. Not in the faintest Degree. What an odd fatality. Rippingill, staring before him. It is rummy. That it should befall you of all persons. Precisely. I, who managed to preserve throughout twenty years of servitude in a government office, what I claim may be fairly described as an almost abnormal perception of the ludicrous. Mrs. Lovett, laying her fan upon his shoulder. However, taking one thing with another, you haven't much to complain of. Rippingill, jumping up. Complain of? Ahem. <clears throat> on the contrary, apart from my... <clears throat> my, er... Uh... It was unfeeling of me to remind you of it. Rippingill, with a wave of the hand. My unfortunate maiden matrimonial venture. I regard myself as the luckiest devil in existence. Why, only think, just as I was becoming sick to death of the office, just as my remarkable sense of humor was, perhaps, beginning to show signs of wear and tear. Mrs. Lovett, looking out of the window. You drop in for all this. <laughs> Delightful, hey? Walking away to the right. This boathouse was my Uncle Horace's last addition to the property. Sitting on the settee. Poor old Horace. Taking his pipe from his pocket. Bless me, how fond the old chap would have been of Avis. He was totally destitute of humour also. Mrs. Lovett, turning from the window abruptly. Seymour, what passes my comprehension is that the child's lamentable deficiency didn't dawn on you sooner. Not that it would have made any difference. Rippingill, discovering that his pipe still contains some tobacco, and relighting it. My dear Dora, our engagement followed a particularly superficial knowledge of each other's idiosyncrasies. But during your engagement... Experience teaches me that that period is often marked by a suspension of the faculty of observation, added to which it was as brief as our previous acquaintance, my wife's aunt, Avis's sole living relative, an aged lady with rheumatic tendencies, earnestly desired to see her niece happily settled in life before she... I understand. Before she went to Bath. Oh, 
Rippingill, with a puzzled air. The whole business was... I don't use the word in its vulgar significance. Stunning. It seems to me, looking back on the affair, that the moment I proposed, my tailor was measuring me for my wedding garments, and that immediately after that I was wearing them in the presence of the registrar. Seeing Trude saunter past the door on the left. Ah, young Trude. What about him? I wonder if he could enlighten us. Enlighten us? As to whether Avis has ever manifested the cheerfulness characteristic of youth. Why should he? He knew her before I did. Rising. He and some of his brother art students were lodgers in the boarding house where I first met her. If it were done delicately. It might be instructive. Trude appears outside the window. Rippingill goes to the window and hails him. My dear fellow, I caution you. That creeper swarms with insects. To Mrs. Levette, indicating that Trude is about to join them. You, open the ball. I'll cut in. Trude enters. Mr. Trude, do come to my assistance. Mr. Rippingill and I are indulging in quite a hot argument. Indeed. He dares to maintain that the sense of humour is more acute in men than in women. Rippingill, behind the table on the left. I was instancing my charming wife. Perfect, absolutely perfect, if I may say so, in all other respects. Distinctly unfair. I should like to have the evidence of somebody who knew her before she was threatened with the responsibilities of marriage. Should you? <laughs> I refer you to our young friend there. Mrs. Lovett, seated at the table on the left, Rippingill at her elbow. Ah, now, Mr. Trude. Trude, advancing. I... <laughs> My dear lady, don't ask me to settle the point. I do, deliberately. You and Mrs. Rippengill were acquainted before she met her husband. I don't deny that. But in the days when Mrs. Rippingill and I... Mrs. Meeklejohn, she was then. Yes? In the days when Miss Meeklejohn and I were reciting at Mrs. Colross's in Whispern Terrace... I and my companions were struggling to find a fitting formula for the expression of our artistic ideals. I see. Which was no laughing matter. We were hesitating. I trust I am not too technical. We were hesitating between realism on the one hand and impressionism on the other. Seating himself in the armchair. Men in that condition of mind need sympathy, not fun and frolic. And that you got from Miss Micklejohn. We made that young lady the recipient of our confidences. Our custom was, I remember, to assemble upon the landing before dressing for dinner. The landing? The second floor landing. Shutting his eyes. I have only to close my eyes to recapture the effect of the evening light streaming through the coloured window. It was a curious play of that light upon the seated figure of Miss Meeklejohn which led to her giving her the name that afterwards clung to her at Mother Coross's. The name? Avis of the Shimmering Hair. Shimmering? Rippingill, coming forward, his handkerchief to his mouth. Shimmering? Hair. Its tone has become somewhat duller, if I may be permitted the remark, than it was in Westbourne Terrace. But may not the same comment be applied generally to life? Rippingill, unable to restrain his laughter... <laughs> I beg your pardon. Avis of the shimmering hair? The setting sun touched with his magic brush. The luxuriant coil at the back of the shapely head, I suspect, eh? Certainly. It was the consciousness of the supreme difficulty of seizing it. Grasping it. The... er... Uh... The shimmer... The difficulty of transferring it to the canvas that nearly drove us artists to despair. 
and you and your friends which school did you favor in the end impressionism or realism impressionism but i think that some of us are gradually drifting towards realism ah you are learning to draw a little i suppose yes no that is rippingill hearing footsteps in the garden behold the lady of the shimmering trude rising hastily to mrs levette excuse me avis is seen to pass first the window and then the open door on the left rippingill to trude lunch at half past one as usual you'll join us thanks uh, and probably he goes out at the door on the left and disappears rippingill following him you'll have a perfectly delightful morning calling to avis aren't you to take a wrap my pet no there i won't worry you returning and closing the door aha most attractive young fellow trude but really i begin to doubt if his sense of humour is worth a two-penny ticket isn't it astounding hurrying across to the right and withdrawing the box from under the settee now depositing the box upon the smaller table and cutting the cord with his pocket-knife ho oh, ho avis of the shimmering hair the first i've heard of that attempting to force the lid of the box with his fingers poor girl her association with those self-absorbed youths in westbourne terrace was enough to crush the spirit of a six-weeks-old kitten mrs levette standing watching him pointing to a pair of champagne nippers which she espies upon the sideboard those champagne nippers excellent applying the nippers to the box dear friend i own i am extremely sanguine as to the effect of these droll playthings heavens i hope they include the wriggling snake the wriggling snake is irresistible the lid opens with a jerk ha a splendid assortment apparently hamley i thank thee ha 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 do look at these handing some grotesque dolls to mrs levette after having divested them of their paper wrappers you'll assist me where shall i put them on the top of the piano he comes upon an elongated air-ball inflates it and follows it as it flutters away from him the flying sausage they visit the box in turn and laughing at each object as it is disclosed move rapidly about the room placing the toys upon the various articles of furniture mrs levette taking a doll from the box <laughs> the golly wog <laughs> rippingill taking out another doll sunny jim <laughs> mrs levette examining the presentment of an eminent politician who's this rippingill diving into the box yes no yes the dying pig eureka discovering a small cardboard box and giving it to mrs levette what have we here rummaging again i can find no snake gross neglect culpable neglect mrs levette opening the cardboard box and producing a small heart-shaped board which has two wheels attached to its broadest part and a piece of lead pencil at its pointed end planchette planchette there's nothing laughable in that mrs levette evincing a certain familiarity with the apparatus laughable no why do they send such trash and omit the wriggling serpent dora she lays the planchette upon the oval table and they continue arranging the toys until the room has the appearance of a toy shop in the end mrs levette sinks upon the window seat breathlessly while rippingill stands in the middle of the room surveying the result of their labours ah superb rippingill pacing the apartment 
dear friend, I repeat, I rest great hopes upon this display. This is irresistible. Webmarsh and Christabel appear in the hall. Hello. Webmarsh, taking a hat from the stand. Hello. Knocked off work, you two? We are going for a short stroll. Coming into the room. The atmosphere has become rather oppressive upstairs. Staring at the toys. My dear Seymour. Rippingill, winking at Mrs. Levette. Ah, you're looking at my dolls. Christabel, who has also taken a hat from the stand, joining her husband. Oh. Nice lot, aren't they? This is my day for them. Your day? Yes, I have them out and play with them once a month, regularly. Mr. Rippingill. A boyish practice. Can't shake it off. You'd scarcely credit how I yearned for them while I was on my honeymoon. Haynes! Hush! Don't be apprehensive of our friend's sanity, Christabel. I imagine this to be another of his irrepressible jocosities. Ha ha! Are you ready? <laughs> Quite. With their heads in the air, they turn away and disappear into the garden. The sky becomes overcast and the light in the room diminishes. Mrs. Levette, rising. You've put your foot in it again, Seymour. Phew! Webmarsh! By Jove! Eh? The coast is clear. Clear? For what? Wait a minute. He runs out at the hall door and returns immediately, carrying the gardener's ladder. This he proceeds to plant against one of the beams of the ceiling. Seymour! I couldn't have desired a more favourable opportunity. He mounts the ladder nimbly and fumbles for something behind the beam. Mrs. Levette, standing at the foot of the ladder... Explain or I upset the ladder. Spare me! Spare me! Mrs. Levette, shaking the ladder... I won't! He descends a rung or two, holding the end of a thin cord, which passes through the ceiling. Rippingill, showing her the cord. A piece of cord. So I perceive. Dear friend, the other end of this is attached to the bottom of the sofa. Sofa? The sofa upon which the reviewer and his Amon Nunes sit and caress. It stands here, above my head. Well? Rippingill, pointing to a doll. A doll. She hands him the doll, and he suspends it by the cord. Dora, the episode of yesterday was no exceptional proceeding. I have observed them from the garden. Webmarsh's eyes are seldom, if ever, upon his book. He squanders the flying hours, hours which he owes to the cause of literature, in spooning. I apologize for the expression, spooning. Sliding down the ladder. Ha <laughs> ha Contemplating the suspended doll. You follow my theory? I evolved it in the middle of the night. The doll should respond. Rippingill, nodding. Even a kiss, the gentlest pressure of the hand, should produce a shiver. Shouldering the ladder. This must amuse Avis, hey? <laughs> Whoever is amused, it assuredly won't be Mr. and Mrs. Webmarsh. Of course not. They remain in complete ignorance. Moving across to the right. There's the cream of the joke. Pausing in the archway. Would you believe it, old friend? I was drilling that hole in the ceiling at a quarter past six this morning. Replacing the ladder. Ho, ho, ho! Irresistible. 
Re-entering? Dora, may I ask for your assistance in testing the contrivance? Mrs. Levet, walking away to the left. What next? I beg your pardon. You misunderstand me. In the archway? You stay here and watch the doll while I, myself, go through the process of reviewing. Mrs. Levet at the bay window. Seymour, this is dangerous. I'll have no hand in this. Dora, oblige me. The pattering of rain is heard. Raining? The wet marshes. Rippingill, leaving the archway. Dash! Calling to Webmarsh and Christabel, who are seen shaking their hats in the hall. Back? Webmarsh, entering the room. In the nick of time. Christabel, looking into the room and then disappearing. Isn't it lucky we hadn't left the grounds? Webmarsh, glancing at the suspended doll as he turns down his coat collar and brushes the raindrops from his sleeves. What's that? That? Oh, that's a simple device for attracting the flies. Thought it might be more of your tomfoolery. My dear Haynes. Webmarsh, moving towards the right. Well, we'll get to work again. Rippingill giggles incautiously. Webmarsh turns sharply and regards him with suspicion. There is a violent burst of rain, and then the downpour gradually ceases, and the sky clears. Good for the grass. Rippingill, controlling himself with difficulty. Yes, I was lying awake during the night, fretting about the grass. Hmm. He withdraws. Rippingill throws himself upon the settee on the right, convulsed with laughter. The door on the left opens and Avis hurries in. She is wearing Trude's jacket over her shoulders. Avis, breathlessly, closing the door. Oh dear me, what a storm! Are you wet? Mr. Trude is. This is his blazer. Rippingill, rising. Where is he? Putting the boat away. I've persuaded him to ask Folly for a change of things. Very prudent. As Rippingill takes the jacket from her, she discovers the toys. Why, what are these? Those? Look at them, my pet. Examine them. Mrs. Levette and Rippingill, laughing encouragingly. <laughs> she wanders around the room in a listless fashion. Rippingill and Mrs. Levette, stretching their heads forward, watch her intently. Where do they come from? Rippingill, laying the jacket upon the back of the armchair. From town. Oh, I wired for him yesterday. Mrs. Levette, on the left. Aren't they excruciatingly funny, Mrs. Rippingill? Rippingill, at the table on the right, inflating the dying pig. Avis. <laughs> Avis. <laughs> the dying pig. What do you propose to do with them all, Seymour? To do with them? The coachman's child had better have a few, I suppose. Then there's the cook's little lame nephew. My pet, nobody can feel more kindly disposed towards Mrs. Thompson's nuisance of a nephew than I. But at the same time, I admit I am slightly disappointed. Disappointed? I had an idea that, <clears throat> that perhaps you... I? Oh, dolls, toys of any sort, never had much attraction for me. Oh, ah. The shower is over. Picking up the jacket and moving towards the hall. I'll carry Mr. Trude's jacket up to the house and order it to be dried. She goes into the garden and disappears. Mrs. Levet and Rippingill sit, the former at the oval table, and he in the armchair. <sighs> Mrs. Levet, in sympathy. Ah, oh, I am afraid my diagnosis is correct, Seymour. 
Rippingill, his head bowed. Diagnosis? Incurable. Oh. Incurable. Don't, don't. They lapse into silence. He staring at the floor, she playing with a planchette. The suspended doll becomes animated, breaking into a dance. They look at each other wonderingly. Mrs. Levette, listening. Hark! Rippingill, after consideration. Bees! Mrs. Levette, discovering the cause of the sound. Ah, oh, the doll is dancing. Oh! Proudly, under his breath. What a success, Dora! What a triumph! Mrs. Levette, lost in admiration. It is indeed ingenious, Seymour. They twist their chairs round to obtain a better view of the doll, and sit gazing up at it, absorbed. The impostor. The arch-impostor. And these are the men whose utterances influence public opinion. Of course, it may be that he or she is seated there alone. Pshaw! Or that he is merely scratching his ear. The dance increases in energy. Look! You are right. That can be nothing but intense, ardent affection. He starts up and makes for the garden, as if to fetch Avis. Avis! Avis! Checking himself and slowly returning. No, I realize it. Even this wouldn't do it. Eyeing the doll ruefully. She didn't notice it was hanging there. Mrs. Levette fingers the planchette again. The doll's dance ceases. An interval. The reviewer now salves his conscience with another paragraph or two. Seymour! Dear friend? Mrs. Levette, turning her chair to the table at which she is seated. Give me a sheet of paper. Rippingill, crossing to the writing table on the left. A sheet of paper. I am going to consult the planchette. The planchette? The planchette. If your wife's distressing malady is open to treatment, it's plain yours is at fault. Taking a sheet of paper from him and adjusting the planchette. I am going to ask the planchette to suggest a means of bringing a smile to Mrs. Rippingill's face. My dear Dora, surely you are too sensible to believe in that mischievous rubbish. Every woman is at heart a witch. Lay your hand on mine. Rippingill, obeying her. Oh, if you... Hush. Closing her eyes. Shut your eyes and let yourself go. Abandon yourself. After a while... It moves. Well, you're wobbling it. Involuntarily. Pickles. Mrs. Lovett, rising, hurt. Seymour. I beg your pardon. I withdraw the word unreservedly. She resumes her seat, and they lay their hands on the planchette again, and again shut their eyes. We are writing. Rippingill, opening his eyes. No. Mrs. Lovett, opening her eyes. Oh, now you've spoiled it. We have scribbled something. Mrs. Lovett, the heads bending over the paper. D? No, P. N? Or is it U? It's a U. P? U? What's that? L? L. Two L's. P, U, double L. Pull. What suggestion is wrapped up in pull? None. Wait, wait, you're so hasty. Pull? Rippingill, walking away to the right. Pull. 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 Pull? Your wife has just returned from a pull on the river. That leads nowhere. 
pull, 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 pull. Rippingill, his face suddenly lighting up. Dora! Found it? Pullinger. What is a Pullinger? Pullinger is a person. My old friend Pullinger. Pull, the first syllable of his name. Mrs. Lovett, rising. Oh, and if you hadn't interrupted the planchette. It is extraordinary, and still more extraordinary, that I haven't thought of Jack before. Going to the telephone and ringing violently. If he is in town today, I'll have him down. Speaking to the telephone. Is that Foley? Foley, put me on to Mr. Pullinger. Mr. John Pullinger, not his brother Frank. Mr. John Pullinger of Kensington Court. At once. Thank you. Mrs. Levatt, crossing to the right. Who is this gentleman? Rippingill, leaving the telephone. He and his brothers are the great biscuit people. You eat them with ices. Yes, but... They're now a company. F and J Pullinger Limited. John's the chairman. Yes, but why should a biscuit baker... My dear Dora, John Pullinger knows no more about biscuits than he does about anything else. What? No, no, no. I mean, there's nothing, positively nothing, that Pullinger doesn't know something about. Without exaggeration, he is the most intelligent man in London. Great heaven! The information that chap can give you upon the most varied subjects. And has he, has he a strong sense of humour? Hmm, no. I should hardly say he matches you, or me, in that department. But in a man of such universal powers, you can't reasonably expect a single quality to predominate. He doesn't exactly sound like the miracle worker we are seeking. Oh, he's not a buffoon, my dear. Dora, that's the article you're in search of. Mrs. Lovett, walking away to the left. Really, Seymour? Rippingill, rubbing his head. I beg your pardon. The telephone bell rings. He runs to the instrument. Hello, hello. I want Mr. John Pullinger. I'm Mr. Rippingill. Oh, is that you, Jack? How are you, my dear fellow? That's right. And how is that sweet, cheery old lady, your mother? Eh? What? Bless me, I forgot. Of course, how stupid of me. Ah, well... She lived to a good, ripe age, didn't she? Mrs. Levette laughs. One moment, Dora. Resuming. I say, Jack, I need your advice upon a matter of considerable importance to me. Vital importance. You are a marvel at helping a man in a difficulty. Yes, you are, you wise old owl. Are you engaged today for luncheon? No? Then come down and make the acquaintance of my wife. Eh? Yes, I'm referring to my new wife. Mrs. Lovett again laughs. Half a moment, Dora. Resuming. Eh? Oh, that's jolly. Half past one. The trains are most convenient. Oh, motor if you prefer it. You've five motors? Well... Come in the five. <laughs> God bless you. Leaving the telephone gaily. My dear Dora, this has lifted quite a load from me. Jack! Mrs. Lovett has returned to the table on the left. He grasps her hand. Was I discourteous? Mrs. Lovett, sitting at the table. Fiddle-dee-dee. Ah, Dora, my head, the serious anxiety. But now I have a presentment. Plinger. The doll dances again. 
Aha, the reviewer. Whoop. (laughs) (laughs) He skips away to the piano and strikes up a lively tune. Mrs. Levette, with closed eyes, resumes experimentalising with the planchette. Rippingill, as he plays. John Pullinger. Trude, in his shirt sleeves and carrying the cushions of the boat, passes the window on his way to the house. End of the first act. <laughs>